0: Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gonness Malka. Welcome to Humanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Port Elizabeth in South Africa is Dr. Francesca Conradi, who works with the VITS Health Consortium, which is part of the Vidvortis University. Welcome to the
1: show. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Dr. Conradi. when I was researching your profile, I came across an article which said that at eight years of age, you decided that you were either gonna become a doctor or
1: a truck driver, quite a, a contrast. What triggered you to take up medicine? Well, let's start off with why was there a choice between being a doctor and a truck driver? I guess at even that young age, I wanted to do something that was uncommon for women to do. And being a doctor was pretty uncommon at that age for a woman. And uh, being a truck driver is a pretty male-dominated uh, profession. But it was really to do something that women didn't want, felt that they were unable to do. I'd like to add that being a pilot was third on the list. Again, for the same reason, it was something that women didn't commonly do. So why did I want you to do, to do medicine? Um, it's going to sound a little bit trite, but I read a book by Christian Barnard. And as I read through it, I, I, I felt that it really fitted in with what I wanted to do with my life. Um, uh, it, it would stimulate me. I guess I didn't really think of it in these terms, but it would stimulate me intellectually. I love life sciences. And I also wanted to, commun- to contribute to the good of humanity to make a difference, I guess. Well,
0: you've certainly made a difference, and we will share that with the audience as we go through your various research pieces. So pursuing a career which was uncommon for women, certainly medicine, when you graduated medical school from Wits University in 1988, if we think about the 1980s, not only was apartheid unraveling in South Africa. But HIV AIDS was on the rise as an incurable condition, which over the last 40 years has led to the deaths of millions of people. And to quote you, you'd said HIV was far and away the biggest problem that any South African would face. I realized that if I was going to be an effective doctor, I needed to learn how to treat HIV. So please tell us about your journey into HIV treatment
1: research. I remember quite clearly in a lecture that I attended in about second year, when we were presented with this new strange uh, disease that affected people who were previously immunocompetent and they developed adult onset immunosuppression. In in my time at medical school, so that was between 83 and 88, they labeled it, they called it Acquired Immunodeficiency uh, Syndrome and it was blamed on a virus called HIV. Um, It's it's quite weird that during my training, it didn't even have a name. Because of the problems within South Africa of political instability during that time, things like the migrant labor system, um, it was obvious that this was going to become a big problem, not for the previously named group of men who have sex with men, but for anyone who lived within South Africa and was sexually active. um, I feel particular compassion for women. Uh, Women, uh, particularly in South Africa, have often been suppressed. They haven't had a voice and are involved in relationships that are not not always equal and they cannot negotiate safer sexual practices. And, In the early days of just qualifying, I saw so many, particularly young women, who um, had been infected with this virus. And at that stage, we had almost nothing to treat them with. I remember clearly patients saying to me, I just want to live long enough for my children to go to school. And in my heart, I knew that many of them would not make it. So I wanted to, and as my career progressed, more and more treatment became available. First of all, it was quite toxic medicines, but it prolonged people's lives. And now we've refined it down to a simple one tablet a day for the vast majority of people. And uh, I wanted to be part of the research solution. And then I suppose the service delivery section that helped uh, particularly South Africans to get a hold of these medicines and to be able to continue with life as normal. Um, And to that end, uh, I joined the health consortium in the year 2000. And at that stage, the rate at which people were getting infected with HIV was phenomenally high. Um, And our government had not yet at that that stage decided that antiretrovirals were in fact the treatment of HIV. Um, In fact, they weren't even convinced that HIV caused AIDS. So into this milieu, I jumped. We started doing registrational trials for many of the drugs that are now within our program um, and uh, focusing on uh, people who had acquired HIV. Many of them, and in South Africa, more women get HIV than men. And particularly, I'd like to add that more younger women get HIV. So women between the ages of 17 and 24 are one of the highest rates of HIV acquisition in in the world, and in particularly in certain uh, provinces in South Africa, uh, namely KwaZulu-Natal. And um, what I wanted to do was I wanted the women to be able to have a normal life, to do the things that people do, make love, make babies, and uh, enjoy life. And I saw that ending for many women. So I started uh, being involved in this career of finding better research, uh, better medicines for people with HIV. I think that in many ways we've got HIV, and I'm saying it cautiously, but we have really effective treatment with low side effect profiles. I don't think that there will be a cure for HIV in my lifetime. I might be wrong, but I don't think there will be. And what we've got is a a chronic condition for which people have to take medicines every day. What's the difference between this, diabetes or hypertension? Nothing. You've got a a sickness, you've got to take your medicines. And um, um, once we established that, then I wanted to move on to a different research field and I moved on to the uh, field of tuberculosis research and um, because many there were many parallels.
0: It must be amazing looking back thinking to those early days of HIV being this incurable disease that was causing so many deaths and and so much stigma around it and today It may be a life sentence, but it's no longer the death sentence that it used to be, thanks to the treatments that have been developed by researchers like you. You mentioned that you've now moved into the field of of TB, and I know that you've been involved with the Clinical HIV Research Unit, uh, CHRU, which falls under the umbrella of the Department of Medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand. Why did you do that shift? What was the the catalyst? Had you felt that you'd done enough on HIV or was
1: there a burning issue that called you to address tuberculosis? A bit of both. The first thing is that the thinking in tuberculosis has been quite stultified. The treatment that I prescribed for tuberculosis in my internship in 1989, we're still using today. And the only difference is that instead of the medicines being in separate tablets, we now co-formulate that. So I didn't see the same kind of innovative thinking in the TB field that I had seen and grown up with in the HIV field. TB is a stigmatized disease um, and very similar, yes.
0: One of the things that I've understood from a TB treatment point of view is that it is a lengthy treatment that people experience really negative side effects, and because of the way that they feel, that they stop with the treatment program. So it just seems so shocking that you're talking about 1989, and these protocols are still in place 40 years
1: later. Yes. So, just to explain a little bit further, there are two types of TB. One that responds to the normal treatment, it's six months of treatment, and only very le- recently has that changed. And then another form of really deadly type of d- disease that's called drug resistant TB, and that's the field that I work in. The treatment for drug resistant TB used to be 18 months long, it used to involve medicines that were given by intramuscular injection. And a third of our patients lost their hearing as a result of that. A very stigmatizing disease that caused people long-term side effects. Imagine if you couldn't hear my voice. That is a a disability. And I thought, how can this be in the year 2010 that we haven't changed and that people think that this treatment is okay? It's not okay. So that's why I moved into the field of drug-resistant TB research. Since uh, moving into that, uh, new, new drugs have been registered. We've shortened the treatment from 18 months down to six months. It's all oral medicine, so we don't give injectable agents anymore, so we're not seeing that side effect of deafness anymore. And the success rate has gone from between 20 to 30% all the way up to 90%. So we've got a very successful treatment for drug-resistant TB. Uh, And that's coupled with the fact that our Chief Director of Drug-Resistant TB, Dr. Norbert Ndjeka, is incredibly forward-thinking and innovative. So the combination of having a robust research environment with a Department of Health that's ready to accept new changes have put us on the forefront of the treatment of drug-resistant TB. Those are incredible advances. We're narrowing
0: the treatment window down from... Eighteen months to six months, changing from an intramuscular injection to an, an oral tablet—that—that that is a, a massive transformation—and obviously, removing the the negative effects such as as losing your hearing. One of the things that I find so fascinating about research is that it continues to strive for for innovation, and I'm sure with the work you're doing—you're going to be looking at how to contract the treatment period even further reduce the number of tablets that have to be swallowed it's just a wonderful
1: pioneering space that you're in yes exactly that uh when i'm finished my career i'd like tb treatment to be maybe a month long i'd like there to be very few side effects so that people can take their medicines and be done with the health system and go back to life a life in all its fullness And looking at the areas that you work in, if we think from a geographic
0: perspective, you have a a concentration within Port Elizabeth. You also have a key concentration group in KwaZulu-Natal. What are the reasons that there is so much prevalence of tuberculosis in these uh, geographies?
1: So I think that the main driver of the TB epidemic in the country is HIV co-infection. And those are the two provinces, KwaZulu Natal and the Eastern Cape, that have a very high prevalence of HIV. You can get TB whether you're HIV infected or not. Uh, The major risk factor for getting TB is whether you're breathing. And uh, so if you're breathing, you're likely to get, it's possible that you get TB. People with HIV, however, are hyper susceptible to TB. So they get TB much more easily and get more complicated to TB. So I think that the driver of the, the HIV, the TB epidemic is HIV uh, in both of those provinces. In uh, Port Elizabeth, until very recently, there wasn't a medical school, which means that there was no uh, research being done. So We had a very high concentration of TB, but not much resources in terms of, of actual research. And that's why I decided to shift from Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth to enable research to occur here. I'm sitting in Port Elizabeth.
0: You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to Dr. Francesca Conradi, who is with the VITS Health Consortium at the University of the Strand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at WomanityTalk. When I look at your profile, one of the things that really strikes me is your education, your dedication to research, but also in terms of women having this ability to pursue STEM subjects and the opportunities that a degree in science and technology, in engineering, in mathematics provides in terms of opening the doors or, or providing a ticket to the game if you don't have access to these types of opportunities the way the world world is evolving, that quite often women are gonna be left behind out of job opportunities and will be disadvantaged. Given your work with various universities and, and different bodies that you've been associated with, do you think that in South Africa, the environment is supportive enough towards
1: directing women to take up opportunities in science? I think that we are slowly moving towards that direction. I think that uh, so long uh, we've been told, don't worry your pretty little head about that. So uh, women have been disadvantaged in a way that we think that there are things that we cannot do. Um, We've been given brains and our brains can function. But as you have mentioned, one of the most important things, and I think it's one of the privileges that I had, is that education is the key. And uh, I know that I was born into a privileged environment, but from my earliest age, my father stressed that I had to learn to stand on my own two feet. I'm one of four sisters and a brother, and he stressed that if you wanted to get ahead, education was the key. In fact, my father himself had one of the first uh, degrees uh, given to him from UNISA. Um, so it was one of the first remote degrees that were ever given was my dad himself. If you want to play the game and if you want to get ahead, education is the key and you are responsible for your own education. It's, I know that life is tough and low is making life even tougher. But learning is your responsibility and grab every opportunity that you have. I think another thing that I often say to women is we can't have everything and we can't have everything all the time there are times when our careers might take a back step because of things other things that we want to do like for example starting a family we have to think and on a continual basis what are and do I want to do with my life this year and if the answer is this year I want to have a family so be it You can't be everything to everyone all the time. But, uh, and it's one of the reasons why many universities actually have the term young investigator and women can be older because many women want to have families. Focus on that at the time and then change if that's what you want to do. Uh, But the key to it all is that you need to have an inquiring mind and you need to get as best in education as you possibly can. Uh, it doesn't matter what other people say. Sit with your books and learn. Um, and then if you have opportunities, grab them with both hands. But without the ticket, you know that bus ride's never going to happen.
0: We, we concur with your sentiment on the show. And also in terms of the, the different methods of, of learning. So there's one thing in terms of going to a, a campus and studying. but when you mentioned UNISA and your dad, you know UNISA gives so many opportunities to allow people to study on a part-time basis that your degree may take three, five, ten times longer than somebody else. but at the same time you're still
1: developing yourself and at the end of the day you're still going to acquire that qualification. And we're not for one second saying that this is easy. It is really tough to hold down employment, particularly if it's menial work associated with getting a higher degree. It's really tough. But what I want to say to the women out there, it's worth it in the long run. You are more likely to achieve your goals in life if you have a good education. You
0: spoke about the dynamic of almost the cases we may want all, but we can't have it all at the same time, that we've got to make some hard choices. It really is a challenge that women have to contend with, striking that balance between work and home. Some people talk about work-life integration. Others will will talk about looking at making uh, conscious choices of not doing something and fulfilling another area of your life. As a successful woman who has worked hard to, to build her career and has a family, What are some of the tools or approaches
1: that you've used that you can recommend to women? I think the first thing is live with the guilt. Whatever you do, you will feel guilty about what you're not doing. Um, I qualified as a doctor and then had three children in quick succession. And uh, during that time, I worked as a general practitioner in a local practice. What I wanted to do was to maintain my skills I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose any of the skills I worked hard at medical school to get, but I wanted to be at home with my children. Uh, once they were older and they started going to school, I grabbed the opportunity of a research career with, uh, with VITs. I was very excited about it, and, uh, but I accept that my career is six to eight years behind the, the, male, the males in my, in my year. That's okay. I think that... Uh, uh, I've I've got to live with it. And, it, you know, being successful, also being able to dedicate time to my children without that terrible feeling of, I failed them, um, it, it has been useful in my life.
0: Dr. Kamaradi, our show is all about celebrating women's achievements uh, in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy. And part of this is obviously on, on the gender equality stage. You mentioned the onset of our conversation of wanting to be something that wasn't common for women. So we had truck driver, we had pilot, and eventually, thankfully, you settled on medicine. Can you tell us about some of the obstacles that you've encountered as a woman whilst you were building your career and how you overcame them?
1: I think if I just think about them, I think that women can often be the most. Harshest critics of women themselves, um, and I think that we've got to guard against that. All women uh, have their own struggles, and uh, women who are assertive have been given certain labels, um, and we, we want to steer away from that. Build other women up as opposed to tearing them down. I think is a is a take home message. So that's the first thing, is that many of the harshest critics that I've had in my life have been female. And let's get over that. We are all together. Uh, Let's celebrate our uniqueness and build each other up. Um, I've seen a big shift in my own profession. My year, the year of 1983, was the first year that men and women were equally represented in the intake class. Now, in fact, they accept more women intimates than men, I think because we have so much to give to the profession. I have seen uh, the kind of sexist comments that I, was, that I faced as a student, they've totally disappeared. And I think that uh, we accept that almost, that women can do anything that they want to and they shouldn't be uh, prejudiced against. A couple of other things is that Women do bear the responsibility of caring for their families. If the kids are sick, no one asks the father why he's still at work, but they ask the mother, if your child is sick, why why aren't you at home? And in, uh, in other ways, it gets even more complicated, that often women take on the role of carer for their aging parents. So you start off with you raise your own family, And then it's expected that the females in the family make sure that granny and grandpa are okay. And while that's an important role as women, uh, it does detract from um, many of our career goals. And that's that's a pity because it should rather be embraced that this is something that we can do. Uh, Caring for our families is part of who we are, uh, both our parents and our children. I'm very happy to report that the general discrimination that I faced as a medical student has largely disappeared. And now no one assumes uh, that uh, when I phone and say, I'm Dr. Conradi, they don't ask me where my husband is. They used to. Um, uh, So things have changed. And I think that that's good news. If you had
0: a crystal ball or a a magic wand uh, looking towards the future of women, what do you think we need to do to build a more egalitarian society where there are no limits imposed on women?
1: I think that that's hard because I think that women do, women are, are mothers, can potentially be mothers, and therefore it's a bit difficult because we will always have that disadvantage. But I often think back to when I was at medical school, you know, the, the white men or boys in my class had to do, uh, military service. I totally disagree with the apartheid regime and conscription, but basically they've faced hurdles in their careers as well. And I think that we need to acknowledge that all of us human beings come into our workplaces with the stuff that surrounds us and to accept that women can, uh, although they might be diversified in what their focus is, they can certainly, they're not And they do contribute to almost every single profession and job with our own uniquely female and a way of thinking. You know, I think
0: one of the takeouts that I'm getting from our conversation is treating life as a marathon and not a sprint, that Mm -hmm. there may be obstacles, you can get over them, you're not time bound to doing things that there are
1: always going to be opportunities, you just have to be ready to embrace them. That's correct, is that uh, what I achieved this year is only one year of my very rich and full life, which has involved love, joy, family, work, uh, academia, all those kind of things. And if this wasn't such a good year, it doesn't matter. Next year will be better. Wonderful attitude.
0: One of the questions that I ask my guests on the show is about the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. So, some people will talk about discipline, others will talk about focus, uh, perseverance, uh, particular values, faith, perhaps an important person in their life. In your view, what have been some of the key drivers to your success?
1: So, um, I think one of the things was it was instilled within me from a very early age, that learning and education was very important. My father, um, he was a very smart man. He also had very diverse interests like music and art. And to this day, those things have remained. So curiosity and the fact that my learning and my development is not anyone else's responsibility, but my own. So, Learn new skills, new things. I, for example, learned to ride a bicycle only 10 years ago and now I'm an ardent cyclist. So learn new things. It is your responsibility to learn. And um, bad things happen in all of our lives. Um, And you can treat the bad things that happen in one of two ways. First of all, it can defeat you or you can take what you can learn from that experience. For example, COVID was a really tough time, and I lost colleagues and family members due to COVID. But I also learned that uh, uh, the importance of close family, of enjoying the precious times that we have, and that uh, working can be different from going to the office every day. And both myself and my staff members can be as productive at work as in at home. So bad stuff happened, but at the same time, we learned some really powerful lessons. And I think that that's one of the things is that when something difficult happens in your life, look at it afterwards and say, what have I learned? What can I do better so that I cope with this kind of adversity a little bit more easily next time? Just today, I came across a, a quote
0: from Marcus Aurelius, and it says, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way.
1: I like it. That's very well put. Thanks, Marcus. Can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life as you were growing up? As I was growing up, I think um, I came from a very sheltered environment. And I was probably only 12 or 13 when I realized the inequality of our system. And it sounds trite again, but I went to see a movie with Ben Kingsley called Gandhi, and for the first time I realised how atrocious the system was that I was growing up in. Um, I did benefit a lot from it. I have a world-class education, but for the first time I realised how unequal the world was. And I think that that um, has been one of the drivers of my life, is to try and Repair the injustices of the past. Um, It's not a blame game, but at least I can make a difference in my own life. So look at inequality and see what I can do to try and address that. I've done it in my career as much as I possibly can, uh, you know, to help people who haven't had the same privileges that I've had to develop uh, a, a really substantial career. So I guess that that was a pivotal moment um other pivotal moments of course when my degree was conferred on me and i realized that i could now go forth and be a doctor that was really exciting and i think that living and working in south africa it's had its challenges and i mentioned the previous uh nahawi strike and the challenges that it put on our operations but also it's a place working in south africa is a place of great opportunities we were told that we couldn't administer antiretroviral therapy in a South African population. Well, that was wrong because we now have over 5 million South Africans who take antiretrovirals. We were told that we couldn't change the paradigm of the treatment of drug-resistant TB. We're wrong again. We've now reduced the treatment down to six months in a very palatable regime tolerable regime. So we can overcome, and working in South Africa's, its challenges, I'm hoping loadshed doesn't occur during this talk, but it's also an opportunity of it's never been done before, let's see if we can manage to get this right. And it's not only in medicine, it's in many fields in South Africa that we've been able to achieve great things um, because of our opportunities. You've got such a a positive drive about you
0: and solution-oriented thinking. You're listening to Womanity Women in Unity. And today we're talking to Dr. Francesca Conradi, who is with the VITS Health Consortium at the University of the Witwatersrand. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at WomanityTalk. Given that we are a gender based show, I wanted to ask you who've been some of your biggest female role models?
1: My biggest female role models. Um... I guess in a kind of weird way, my mother was an incredible role model. She um, married my father, obviously, and um, then had a really subservient role to my dad. Uh, My dad was the head of the household. And when I looked at her and how she encouraged me and almost lived her life vicariously through me because I had so many opportunities, Um, And I think I look back on those times and think, um, thanks, Mom, for really supporting me in in doing all the things that I needed to to get a good matric and to be able to go to medical school. And So my mom, although she had a really tough life, uh, was a a really good role model to me. Another one of my role models, and it's going to sound trite, is my daughter. Um, She is uh, now 30 years old. She's a qualified lawyer. And I see this brave young girl going forth and uh, taking on challenges that didn't exist when I was a girl, a girl growing up to be a a woman, but also how the world has changed and seeing it through fresh eyes. I'm almost uh, at not quite at retirement age. I've got another good 10 years within me to work. But just seeing this new generation of brave women coming forward and saying it's never been done before, well, damn it, I'm going to be doing it. It seems to run in the family. (laughs) What would you say has been your biggest lesson to date, if you could share one? My biggest lesson? Um, It's it's a bit of a personal one. I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was a huge... um, It's very early and my treatment has been successful, but to realize my own mortality and to realize that this is the only chance in my faith that I have to make an impact on the world and to really count my blessings and also to realize where I'm going to be focusing my attention, where I will be able to give the biggest bang for my buck.
0: I'm very sorry to hear about your diagnosis, but glad that you're on your treatment programs and that they are working.
1: But I'd like to use this as an opportunity to speak to the women who listen to this show. Please do your regular health checks. We are lucky in many ways that women are much more likely to access health care. And we have no uh, shame in going to the doctor for our pap smears, for our mammograms, for contraception, to take our babies for vaccination. Uh, please take advantage of this and make sure that if you have any conditions that they're adequately treated. Medicine these days is fantastic. So please um, uh, look after yourselves. Our bodies are like car engines. You know, if you don't service your car, your car will break down and it will cost you a lot of money to repair. Our bodies are like that, only sometimes they can't be repaired. So please take advantage of health checks to make sure that if you have any conditions, let's get it sorted out.
0: Great message on the health side of things. As we close out our conversation today, please can you use this platform to share a few words of motivation or inspiration with women and girls that are listening to us?
1: So dear women, girls, teenagers who are out there and listening to my voice, uh, we have a special set of qualities and, uh, and have been told that these are not always useful. That's wrong. We have something to contribute to almost every endeavor of humankind. There is nothing that women A can't do if they set their minds to it, and B, once they've done it, cannot add to the profession, to the work, to the benefit to the society. So women go forth. Enjoy being female. Enjoy womanness, but also know that this is not a limitation to anything you can or choose to do with your life.
0: What a great message. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thanks very much.
0: Dr. Kamrati, thank you again for joining us and really would also just like to say this opportunity that we wish you well in your personal health journey as well as your public health journey in the work that you do. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman Immunity and today we've been talking to Dr. Francesca Kamrati, who is with the Vitz Health Consortium at the University of the Vit Waters